welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go to a remote wild coastline and spend a week walking and camping on beaches and hiking through temperate rainforest. This requires not just hiking, but climbing ladders, crossing rivers on hand-operated cable cars, and taking ferries. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we take our first trip to Canada, to the wild, wet west coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, where we travel the West Coast Trail in Pacific Rim National Park Reserve. Welcome to the show, everyone. Our guest on the show today is Taryn Eiton of the Happiest Outdoors website. Taryn lives in British Columbia and is one of the most knowledgeable people out there about hiking in this region. She's also written a book on hiking in the area, which she'll talk about in our conversation. The West Coast Trail is a coastal hike, as the name implies. This is the third coastal hike that we've covered so far on the podcast. If you are interested in coastal hikes, you might check out episode four, where we covered the Kalalau Trail in Kauai, Hawaii. In that episode, you can hear about my daughter's encounters with the the folks that live illegally out in the lush tropical coastal paradise along the Nepali coast of Kauai. Or if you are interested in a coastal hike in Europe, you might try episode 10, where Sabrina Brett and I talked about the Rota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail in Portugal. This is on one of the last wild coasts of Europe. That uh, hike certainly inspired me to want to get out to the coast of Portugal and hike. And then today we're going to be talking about the West Coast Trail on the coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. But we're going to start this story on a different island. When I was eight years old, My great-aunt and uncle lived in British Columbia, and my family drove from Northern California to see them. But they didn't live in Vancouver or Victoria or any of the other bigger cities of British Columbia. They lived full-time on Savory Island, a tiny strip of rainforest between Vancouver Island and mainland British Columbia, out in the Strait of Georgia. Savory Island has about 100 full-time residents. It grows to many times that during the summer. And it was originally part of the Tla'amun First Nation people's territory. The only way to get to Savory Island was by a small water taxi from the tiny village of Lund on the mainland. When the taxi dropped you off and you got to the island, the roads on the island were just muddy dirt roads. My uncle came and picked us up at the dock on his tractor. And by the end of our stay that week, he had me in his lap driving the tractor, which I still remember being a lot of fun. My great uncle Jerry and Aunt Jess lived out on a point facing west. I remember the little red house, the fantastic vegetable garden they had. And I remember the hike down the bluff to the beach to where my brother and I found massive amounts of driftwood that we used to build forts on the beach. I remember my dad picking up oysters on the beach and eating them raw. And more than anything, I remember how alive I felt in my time there. And so I have a soft spot for the coastal rainforest of British Columbia and was excited to do this episode. Vancouver Island is a massive island. It's 456 kilometers long, so that's 283 miles, by 100 kilometers wide, that's 62 miles wide. It has 32,134 square kilometers, which is 12,407 square miles. 
To put it in context, it's the largest and most populated island on the west coast of the Americas. In fact, Vancouver Island is bigger than all the islands of Hawaii combined. It is a wet location on the west coast of Canada. It's more wet on the west side of the island. There's somewhat of a rain shadow effect on the east side of the island. Overall, though, the climate is pretty mild. One other thing about Vancouver Island is it has the tallest waterfall in Canada in Strathcona Provincial Park. That's Della Falls, and they are at 440 uh, meters high. Uh, but don't get too excited about Della Falls unless you're really uh, willing to, to work hard to get there. It requires a multi-day hike and canoe trip to reach the falls. As I've mentioned, this is an area of temperate rainforest. There's a huge variety of trees. There's Douglas fir, western red cedar, western hemlock, Pacific silver fir, Sitka spruce, western white pine, maple, alder, madrone, among many other kinds of trees. Interestingly, a lot of the mainland fauna are not found on the island. So there are no mountain goats, no moose, no coyotes, no porcupines, no skunk, and no chipmunks on the island. There are black bear, there's elk, there's deer, and there are even wolves. There are lots of marine mammals in the area as well. There's the pod of orcas. There are migrating humpback and gray whales that come through the area. And there are many seals and otters. Interestingly, there's both river otters and sea otters. The sea otters were hunted to extinction in the area and had to be reintroduced. One thing you will also find in abundance on Vancouver Island is cougars, or what we call here in the San Francisco area mountain lions, and in many areas are called pumas. There are six to eight hundred cougars on the island. It's the highest concentration of cougars in North America. Most of the cougars, however, are on the northeastern part of the island, and the West Coast Trail is on the southwestern part. So maybe not so many along the trail. And Taryn and her two hikes of this trail never saw any. There are lots of deer to keep the cougars fed. A couple interesting facts about cougars, they have the largest hind legs proportionally of any wild cat, and as a result, they can jump horizontally 6 to 12 meters, so that's 20 to 40 feet in one jump. Another fact is they can run up to 70 kilometers per hour in speed. So, a agile, fast, powerful animal, but when they're well-fed with deer, not a huge threat to humans. Vancouver Island has been populated by indigenous peoples for thousands of years. There are three main groups of indigenous peoples uh, historically on the island. There are the Kwakwaka'waka, which are also known uh, as the Kwakiutl, and they're in the northern part of the island and part of the mainland. There's the Coast Salish, and I apologize if I'm getting these pronunciations horribly wrong. And that's a term for many different groups on the southern part of the island and part of the mainland. The Coast Salish, or Salish, if I'm saying that wrong, are about 5,500 people today. And then there's also the Nuta Nolt, which is a collection of different smaller groups along the western part of the island. And that collection of peoples is over 8,000 people strong today and is a collection of 13 different smaller groups. Europeans discovered Vancouver Island in the late 18th century. The Spanish and British were the first Europeans to arrive, though there were rumors of Russian fur traders in the area by then, which was one of the reasons the Spanish showed up to protect what they thought was going to be infringement by the Russians in the area. James Cook came to the island in 1778. He spent a month in Nootka Sound. 
and he claimed the island for Britain. And Cook's arrival there is the earliest record of a European being on the island. But shortly after, in 1789, Spanish ships arrived and set up a small settlement. It's interesting because this small Spanish settlement is the only Spanish settlement that existed in what would later become Canada. So the Spanish and the British arriving at roughly the same time created a big problem. At one point, the Spanish seized British ships, and there was a dispute over who had claims to the island. Spain and Britain actually came close to war over this. And in 1792, the British sent naval captain George Vancouver to try to resolve the dispute. Vancouver was also on a mission to map the area and arrived in 1792, and and his Spanish counterpart was Juan Francisco de la Bodega y Cuadra. Vancouver and Bodega y Cuadra negotiated, but weren't able to resolve anything. To try to show that both countries had a claim to the island, they actually named it Cuadra and Vancouver Island. And then two years later, after heightened uh, tensions in 1794, the Spanish gave up their claim to the island and left. And for decades, it was called Quadra and Vancouver Island on maps. But eventually it became known as Vancouver Island and became part of Canada in 1871. George Vancouver is quite a character and had quite a history. He's an interesting guy. He was best known for this trip that he took to the west-north coast of the Americas from 1791 to 1795. But he had also uh, explored Hawaii and Australia. In addition to Vancouver Island, the city Vancouver in British Columbia and the, the city in Washington State called Vancouver are both named after him. There's a mountain on the Yukon-Alaska border named after him. And there's actually a mountain in New Zealand named after him as well. Vancouver actually joined the Navy at age 13 and within a year was on Cook's second voyage and then later joined Captain Cook on his third voyage. So he was a a well-experienced traveler by a young age. In his voyage to the Pacific Northwest, he named several of the features we know today. Among others, he named Mount St. Helens, Mount Rainier, and Puget Sound. After this uh, adventure to the Pacific Northwest, he went back to London and retired. And unfortunately, he died less than three years later of unknown causes. And after all this traveling and all this discovery, when he died, he was only 40 years old. But remember, he had started sailing at age 13. One thing he's known for that I think is worthy of mentioning is that he had very cordial relationships with the native peoples he encountered throughout his voyages. All right, so back to the island. Today, Vancouver Island does have one big city. That's Victoria, the capital of British Columbia. And there are about 335,000 people in the Victoria area. But a lot of the island is pretty sparsely populated, including where this hike is. The hike itself is actually in Pacific Rim National Park Reserve, which was created in 1971. We'll get into the history of the trail itself in my conversation with Taryn. So why don't we jump into that conversation right now? Taryn Eiten, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you are the author and creator of the Happiest Outdoors website. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's something I kind of started as a hobby back in 2014. Um, It just was kind of a place for me to share like photos and stories about trips I had been on. And over the years, it's evolved into a like sort of hiking and adventure travel resource for primarily areas near me, but kind of some of the places I've traveled all over the world as well. Where are you located? 
Uh, I live in Squamish, British Columbia, Canada, so I'm in between Vancouver and Whistler in, I think, what they're calling the adventure capital of Canada. So you've been interested in the outdoors for a long time, and now you are basically doing Happiest Outdoors full time, but that wasn't always the case. How did you, how did you end up where you ended up? Yeah, um, I've been kind of into the outdoors my whole life. I grew up in kind of an outdoorsy family. We went camping a few times a year and hiking, and my dad was really big into mountain biking, and he still mountain bikes in his late 60s, which is cool. But it wasn't until university I started in the summers. I had a part-time job. I couldn't get a full-time job. There wasn't enough work. And so I started going hiking because it was free. And it just kind of built from there. And it was something that I worked in outdoor stores when I was completing my degree. And I thought this was just going to be something that was a hobby for me. So I switched careers. I was a lawyer for a few years. And I switched careers and started working for a large outdoor retailer in Canada um, in their head office writing for their website. Because it turns out that when you know how to write a legal brief, you know how to write a lot of other things too. So I mean, it wasn't the most natural switch, but I made it work. And so I was like, oh, wow, I'm doing this job that's to do with my passion. This is perfect. And then I did that for six or seven years. And in 2019, I thought, it's time. And I kind of struck out on my own and my website and my freelance writing about the outdoors are my full-time job now. And so not only did you switch from legal writing to then writing for a corporate entity uh, in the outdoor field and then also to a website, but you've now written a book as well, right? Yeah. So my first book was published this May. It's called Backpacking in Southwest British Columbia. It's basically got 40 backpacking trips um, within a few hours of Vancouver. Most are sort of one to two nights. And a lot of them have like hikes you can do from a base camp that would make it worthwhile for you to stay overnight. And how has the reception been to that book? It's been really great. You know, during the pandemic, we thought, oh, my God, like, are people going to want to buy books? Is this the wrong time to launch this thing? But it's been amazing. People are really interested in getting outdoors because it's something that they can do close to home and that's safe. So it's been really positive. And uh, yeah, it's I've been fortunate enough to be on my local bestsellers list since the book came out. That's great to hear. So we are here today to talk about the West Coast Trail, and you hiked it most recently in 2019, and I think that'll be the sort of bulk of what we talk about. But um, I saw from your website that you also hiked it back in 2004, and it was actually your first backpacking trip. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I was in university, I you know did a lot of day hiking, as I said, in the summers um, when I had free time. And at my last university, I met this guy and he was into backpacking. And I was like, well, I like hiking, but I like showers and beds too. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, you're going to like it. And I was like, well, I don't want to be that like prissy girlfriend who doesn't want to try backpacking. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll try it. And we did go on one winter trip to a hut um, where I slept indoors, but it was only one night. So I had carried a backpack before. And he and two of his friends, another couple, were going on this trip on the Vancouver Island called the West Coast Trail. It was sort of like end of June. University was winding down. And we thought, let's go. Let's have this adventure. And I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I used a lot of gear. I borrowed from my boyfriend. I got, my grandmother wanted to buy me like an expensive watch for my graduation from university because I just graduated. And I said, oh no, grandma, I'd like a sleeping bag and hiking boots, please. It's going to be about <laughs> the same price. <laughs> and did she get those for you? She did. Yeah, she did. Nice. I, and I used them for years. They're both retired now, but uh, I used them for years. Way to go, grandma. Yeah. <laughs> so we did the West Coast Trail, the four of us, Quite quickly, I think we did it in five nights, six days, and I cried uh, a couple of times. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, my backpack didn't fit. I had a scar for a long time on my collarbone where the pack rubbed me raw. But it was beautiful. It was tons of fun, and I was totally hooked. I did lots of other backpacking trips that summer, so it was definitely a pretty formative experience. It's funny that you say that about it being a very difficult experience with a lot of things going wrong, and yet you were still hooked because like you, I had a similar experience where my first trip was, I did everything wrong. I borrowed equipment, nothing really worked right. And the same thing, I was just completely hooked anyway. Uh, so that's how you know it's really for you when it's at its worst. It's still fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was hooked on the guy too. We've been married now for 12 years. So 
Oh, good. I'm glad that worked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could have easily gone a different direction if you were a different kind of person, right? It could have. I think we'd only been dating for like six months or something at the time. <laughs> All right. So then we'll fast forward to 2019 and you decide to hike the trail again. And this time, um, we'll go into the details, obviously, but what did you do to, first of all, let me ask, who did you go with? And then what did you do to go about figuring out how to do it maybe a little bit better? Yeah, so I went with the, some of the same people and some more. So we were actually a group of eight, my husband and I, the same couple we hiked with last time. And they brought their two children who were at the time were, I think, almost 10 and 13 or 12, 12, 13, somewhere in there. And uh, then we also hiked with another couple. So there was eight of us in total. Thankfully, in the intervening years, outdoor equipment has come a long way, as has my budget. And uh, (laughs) things were a lot lighter. I didn't take any painkillers. I didn't cry. My pack was not too heavy. It uh, we had a much more enjoyable time and the scenery was as beautiful as it had been before. And because you're so experienced now with outdoor adventures like this, were you the person that led the planning for the second trip? Or was it still something that other people were doing? The people that I went with are are friends of the kids. We've been done a lot of backpacking trips with them. We started when the kids were like seven and four. And the other couple that we went with, like we've trekked in Nepal with them in the Canadian Rockies. So all of us are pretty experienced. So I think that I probably did a lot of the logistical planning just because I'm the only one who can do that as a full-time job. (laughs) Right. But yeah, all of us, including the kids, were pretty experienced. So let's talk about the trail a little bit and the history of the trail. I saw on your post about this trail that you had some background on how this trail came to be. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the trail is, um, it runs along the west side of Vancouver Island. And Vancouver Island is this like long island off the coast of the west coast of Canada. And the area has been the traditional territory of several indigenous groups for since time immemorial, the way that they put it. So there's the Hueyat in the north, the Dididat in the middle, and the Pachidat in the south. And they've been in the area for thousands of years. Ancient village sites there, traditional use dating to the present day. They're still there. They still have villages there and fishing areas and harvesting areas. So the area is, you know, not undiscovered. The people have been there for thousands of years. But of course, Europeans started traveling through the area off the coast in ships in the 1800s, and they kept running into rocks and crashing their ships and and dying. So in the early 1900s, they decided that that was, you know, people were dying and cargo of commerce importance on this way to Alaska was being lost. So they put in a telegraph route and lighthouses to try and solve some of those problems. And Over the time that route between the telegraph lines was made into a trail called the Dominion Lifesaving Trail. But, you know, with radar and other shipping routes, the telegraph trail and a lot of the lighthouses were decommissioned and the route fell into disrepair. In the 60s and 70s, hikers kind of rediscovered it. And I have the earliest guidebook to the trail from 1972. And it has uh, instructions in it like... In this section, there is a lot of blowdown, so take a compass bearing and try and find a tree to walk on that matches your bearing above. Try not to get more than 10 feet above the ground because the (laughs) fall might be disastrous. Um, But in the 70s, it was made part of a national park, which is Pacific Rim National Park, which encompasses this big section of the West Coast. The most famous part is Tofino, which is kind of the like surfing capital of Canada. And Parks Canada has kind of made it into a real trail. But because the trail is, the terrain is so rugged, there's a lot of infrastructure that the park has installed and maintained. And today, the First Nations guardians of the indigenous groups also are responsible for maintaining different parts of the trail. Um, There's tons of bridges, lots of wooden ladders, lots of boardwalk uh, and cable cars across a few of the rivers. So that brings to mind a question that someone like me, who's from California and is used to our fairly dry Sierra Nevada, this is a very different kind of terrain, right? So what does this area look like? What does it feel like to hike in this area? So Vancouver Island and most of coastal British Columbia is in the world's largest temperate rainforest. So uh, it's wet. (laughs) Uh, It's wet. It's slippery. It's muddy. There's moss or something growing on everything. There's lots and lots of little creeks and gullies that these creeks are in. Some of them are very, very steep because they're carved by lots of rainfall There's lots of huge old growth cedar trees and ferns. 
And then the beaches off the coast, um, because of the unique geology of Vancouver Island, which is different than the rest of British Columbia, are sandstone. So when the tide goes out, it can be almost like a barnacle-covered sidewalk because the sandstone rock uh, emerges out from underneath the tide. So it's actually a beach that's not sand. It's like it's a rock beach. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of it is rock shelf, which if you hit it at low tide is wonderful walking. I was going to say, yeah, that might actually be easier to walk on than sand where you're kind of at an angle and sinking in. Yeah, there's there's lots of that, too. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's lots there's some sandy beach, lots of pebble beach and lots of rock shelf. And the trail in a lot of places, you have a choice. You can take the inland route at high tide and walk on a forest trail that might be quite muddy and rooty and through a bog. Or you can walk on the beach uh, if the tide is low, which might be sand in your boots or slippery rocks. Uh, so you, you pick your poison. Which do you usually pick? The beach. Yeah, that's what I would think. Yeah, most people pick the beach. So let's talk about the logistics a little bit for this hike. What time of year is the best time to do it? So the trail is open from May through September. May and June-ish can be kind of wet, uh, and the tail end of September can be kind of wet. July and August are generally the best time to go. And so those are the lowest rainfall months of the year? Yeah, they're the lowest rainfall, the warmest temperatures, although the coast does experience a phenomenon that locals call foggist, where August is very foggy. Quite often you wake up in the morning and it's foggy and you can't see a thing until about 2 or 3 p.m. Yeah, in the Bay Area here, we call that June gloom because it happens in June here in San Francisco or in the San Francisco area. Okay, so there is still a good chance of rain, though, even in the, even in the middle of summer, you have to be very prepared for rain, right? Yeah, and a lot of years, the trail, even in the height of summer, will experience a few days of absolutely torrential, horrific rain. I personally have never had that on the trail, thank goodness, but I have had it elsewhere on Vancouver Island on coastal trails. And so what is the distance of this hike? Officially, it's 75 kilometers, which I think is something like 46 miles. And there are kilometer markers like posts in the ground as you walk so that you can, you know, kind of track your progress. So even if you're used to thinking in miles and you come to hike this trail, I think it is more logical to think in kilometers because you're trying to get to that next kilometer marker. But the trail keeps moving because trees keep falling on it or they move a bridge or the ladder breaks and they put it somewhere else. So you'll see all kinds of, like, if you look at Strava tracks or anything uh, online of people who've done the trail, you'll see anything between, like, 85 and 90 kilometers total. I'd say probably about 85 is about right. And how many days is a reasonable itinerary to do this? Most people, um, I'd say the majority of people, take seven. The cost to do the trail is the same. You can do it in a single day or you have up to 14 days to get off the trail. So seven is by far the most common. I would say six would be the next, six and eight would be the next most common. Um, trail runners run it in a day. Some people like to take their time and take 10 days. Um, if you stopped at every single campsite, I think you would take something like 12 days. But yeah, seven is by far the most common. On your website, you have a post that actually talks about the seven-day itinerary, but also has these alternative itineraries. So if people want to see what an itinerary for a shorter or longer trip might look like, they can take a look at Happiest Outdoors and find that, right? Yeah. And, I, and I've also got suggestions there. So the seven-day itinerary kind of pigeonholes you into the seven most common campsites, which, you know, is great for camaraderie and stuff. But if you're looking to get kind of into off-the-beaten-path and campsites where you'll only share with one or two other tents instead of a dozen, I've got options for that too. It does kind of end up with some weird short days and long days, like you can't get the same balance of, you know, mileage per day. But a lot of those campsites are really beautiful. Do people tend to do this with one um, supply of food or do people tend to have a resupply point? There isn't really anywhere to resupply that makes any sense. The whole trail is remote. So the trailheads are one of the southern trailhead is in like a very small fishing town called Port Renfrew. It's just outside of Port Renfrew. And the northern trailhead is just outside of another small fishing town called Bamfield. And both trailheads are actually on indigenous land. And there aren't really like big stores or anything there. So, um, you know, like there are restaurants and stuff catering to tourists, but you should prepare yourself with all your backpacking stuff before you come. 
And then there's also a middle point that you can get to by water taxi that leaves from an indigenous village that has a like canteen and that's it. And then on the trail, because there are indigenous reserves on the trail, there are historically two places where the local uh, First Nations people have set up restaurants, which is kind of a really unique experience and something that a lot of people love about the West Coast Trail. So at the sort of it's not really the midpoint kilometer wise, but it's the midpoint psychologically because you have to take a ferry across an inlet at Nitnat Narrows. The Edgar family has had a house there at the village there for well, well, it used to be a village. Now it's just the Edgars for decades. And the Edgar family has been running the ferry across the Narrows since the 70s. And they have three generations working there at the Crab Shack restaurant. And they serve breakfast, lunch and dinner to hikers cash only at the kind of prices you would expect when you were in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but they have fresh caught crab and salmon. They'll make you pancakes. They'll make you a grilled cheese. It's definitely the most unique way to resupply. Well, that sounds like something you absolutely can't miss. Um, if you're in the middle of a hike where you're carrying, you know, your freeze-dried backpacking food, that would be pretty nice to have. Yeah. And then there's another spot, kind of depending on how you hike, most people will hit it the same day, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, there's another place called Chez Monique. And Monique and her husband ran that place for years and years um, but unfortunately both passed away and so the the future of their it was kind of a driftwood and tarp shack establishment on the beach on indigenous land and the future of their their restaurant is up in the air their children I think are starting to try and get it going but uh, it was absolutely a west coast trail staple for um, burgers and beer for a lot of years because the crab shack used to just sell crab and you could, have, you could get your burger at Monique's and your crab at the Crab Shack. But now the Crab Shack has expanded to a, they're like a little diner. Yeah, they've become metropolitan now, right? <laughs> they have. <laughs> what about gear? Anything in particular that's not obvious that you need to think about for gear? Your standard backpacking gear. Um, I wouldn't go out without really good rain gear, even if it's not in the forecast. And I think gaiters are highly recommended in trekking poles. If you hate gaiters, you hate trekking poles, you probably still hate them on this trail. But if you're kind of on the fence, bring them. You'll appreciate keeping the mud and the sand out of your boots and the added stability you get from trekking poles on the rooty sections. And for navigation, what's the best map to get for this hike? When you register with Parks Canada, they give you a map. There's also a copy of it on their website. It's a like giant PDF. Um, and because it's a coastline hike, it kind of like is this like long skinny thing. So it wraps around both sides and that's all you need. It has all of the campsites, all of the creek crossings, all of the places that you have to avoid and what tides you have to avoid them at. And they give you a printed copy when you check in. How is the trail? Is it pretty easy to follow from kilometer to kilometer? You mentioned these markers or is it one where you really do need a map? No, it's really easy to follow, especially the forest trail, the there's just been so much foot traffic. There's 7,000 people, roughly, I think 7,500 who do the trail every year. The forest parts are very easy to follow. The only trick for navigation is that, um, like a lot of other coastal trails, like in Washington State, for example, there are big markers in the trees on the beaches that show you where the trail leaves the beach. So you just have to look for those. Because if you miss them, you might end up walking around the corner into a place that when the tide comes up, it will trap you against a cliff. And that raises a good point, which is you really do need to have a tide table here and be paying close attention to it, right? So they give you a tide table when you check in, but it's the most basic tide table that's not adjusted for daylight savings time. So my biggest piece of advice would be to bring your own tide table. The Canadian government produces a tide table that is adjusted for daylight savings time and has the predicted hourly heights which is much more helpful because knowing what the low tide is and what the high tide is, is nice, but knowing that it's going to be two meters at 4 p.m. is nicer. Okay. And which direction should people hike this trail? Is it really doesn't matter or is there a better way to go, in your opinion? The trail is so hard to get trail reservations. It's so popular that you should hike the trail in the direction you can get a reservation for. Okay. Uh <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there are pros and cons to going north to south or south to north. And you can also enter in the middle and go one way or the other and then turn around and go the other way if you wanted to. There, As long as you're off within 14 days, they don't care what you do. Basically, in general, the northern section is 
easier and the southern section is harder. So some people like to do north to south because you ease into it. Uh, and then you have light packs for the hard stuff. Some people like to do the hard stuff first so that they know they can get it over with. One thing I forgot to ask about food is what about food storage? Are there, are there concerns about bears getting into food and, and how do you prevent that? Yeah, there are bears, cougars, and wolves on the trail. I've personally never seen any of them on the trail, but um, they're around. I've seen prints, and I know that currently on the trail, one of the campsites is closed because one of the uh, there's a bear that won't leave. So they're around. All of the the campsites have a either metal food lockers for food or a metal pole that you sling a rope over or use a hook to hang on. At the very busy campsites, they can get full. So people are advised to bring their food in a dry bag and carry their own rope to hang in a tree if the food cache is full. And how are the campsites? You mentioned that it sounds like pretty much people camp at what are predictable sites. And are they, you know, whether they're full or not, what are they like? Are they just beach camping? Yeah, it's just beach camping. A few of the campsites have a clearings in the forest behind the beach, but for the most part, it's find a flat piece of sand, have a look at the seaweed and make sure that you're above the seaweed, because if you're below the seaweed, you're going to get wet at four in the morning. And they all of the designated campsites have food caches, very fancy composting toilets um, where you have to put like wood shavings down in after them, after you use them. So I think that all the toilets smell like a hamster cage. Well, I guess that's better than the alternative. <laughs> yeah. And also because they have to have this like big holding tank, they all have stairs or ladders to get up to the like actual outhouse part, which is kind of nuts to like climb a ladder at four in the morning to go pee. But so the throne is really a throne. It is. Yeah. A lot of them have a great view. <laughs> all right. And how do people get to this trail? I mean, you mentioned that it's fairly in a fairly remote spot. What's the best way to if you're coming, let's say, from the United States or for other from other parts of Canada? So most people will travel to Victoria, which is the capital of BC and the kind of biggest city on Vancouver Island, um, has an international airport or ferries from the mainland. And actually, there's a ferry from Washington State as well. And then from there, there's a bus service called the West Coast Trail Express that will take you to all three of the trailheads and pick you back up at the other end. You have to reserve in advance you can also drive yourself to all three trailheads. Both times I've done it, we've driven ourselves to one trailhead and then uh, taken the bus back to our car. And what about for the night before, night after? Um, are there campgrounds at either end? Yeah, there's campgrounds right next to the trailheads at both ends. In the south, you can stay at the Pachidak campground, uh, which is really beautiful and popular with surfers. Uh, and in the north, you can stay at the Pachina Base campground. Both campgrounds are run by the local indigenous tribes. And then both trailheads have kind of within a five, 10 minute drive, uh, like hotels, cabins, that kind of thing. Not a ton, but enough. But as you said before, no real grocery stores. So bring all your food for the trip already. Yeah. Yeah. Both towns nearby have little restaurants and it's great to support these trailhead towns by, you know, having your celebratory afterwards meal there or your night before last hot food there. But yeah, you're certainly not going to find a lot of groceries there. And what about permits? You mentioned that a lot of people are trying to do this during the summer. How do you get permits? Um, what do they cost? And, and how difficult is it to get them? So you have to reserve in advance. Um, most years, the reservations open online in January. Um, with the pandemic, things have been a little different. But hopefully next year, it'll be back to January. It's a pretty competitive process. So if you want to go, I would advise that everyone in your group should be online on the day of reservations with an account already created with Parks Canada and your dates and everything already picked out and your credit card ready because it sells out. The popular dates sell out in an hour on opening day. And as far as the cost, what, what does this cost to do? So permits are about $130 a person. Um, and then there's some additional stuff on top of that. So you need to pay for ferry fees, which are included. You need to pay a national park entry fee. So in total, you end up being like 200 and something altogether, I think. Something like that. And that's Canadian dollars. Yes, that's Canadian dollars. Yeah. One thing I saw that was kind of interesting is that once you have a permit, you're required to take a mandatory orientation session. What is that about? 
Yeah, so the orientation session accomplishes a few things. So the West Coast Trail is popular enough that it is a lot of people's first backpacking trip. So I was, when it was my first backpacking trip, I went with three other people who all were experienced backpackers. Um, And it's not uncommon for groups to enter the West Coast Trail where all of them are inexperienced backpackers. Um, It's the kind of trail that's been in magazines and stuff for years um, and people have it on their bucket list and they train for it and they do it. So the orientation session contains, you know, like basic information about like, do you have your rain gear? It will rain. But it also has, you know, information about coastal hiking, the hazards of tides, which will be new to a lot of people. Information about safety, because there's just so many ways you can slip and fall and hurt yourself. So information about uh, like how to call for help and prepare for an evacuation. And then it's, it also has an overview of the trail about what to expect. The park ranger does a whole like PowerPoint slideshow with photos. And then they also give you updates on, you know, like, oh, this bridge is out or this ladder is damaged or there's a bear here. Sort of the latest update on what's happening on the trail. So let's talk a little bit about the actual itinerary and going through sort of what a seven day trip might look like. And I should mention that we talked before about your post where you have different itineraries, but you also have a separate post that talks about each section of a seven day itinerary um, section by section, right? Yeah, honestly, I should have just written a whole book about the West Coast Trail. There's so much stuff on my website about it. So please go enjoy that for free. Um, Yeah, so I do have a section by section. And I also have like a quick 10 minute YouTube video, which I just watched to like refresh my memory for this, this interview, which is like a good visual overview too, if you're looking for something like that. I definitely watched it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you had the the selfie stick for your for your uh, video camera or whatever you were using, your phone. Yeah, it was a GoPro. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah. All right. And so if we start with your itinerary for seven days is going from north to south in 2019? Yeah. And I also have laid out all of the descriptions that I have the trail are laid out from north to south because kilometer zero is in the north. So if you hike from south to north, you'll start with kilometer 75 and be looking going backwards. So it just seemed natural to count up to me. That makes sense. Okay. So the first day you have is Pachina Bay to Michigan Creek or Darling River. So my first question is why the potential for two different spots on that first day? They're not very far apart. They're like two kilometers apart. So it's 12 versus 14 kilometers. So, you know, looking another 40 minutes to an hour at the most, maybe a little faster, depending on the terrain, whether the tide is out and you can walk on the beach. You know, it depends. A lot of people have their heavy pack on the first day or they start late because they had to get into a later orientation session or they're arriving on the bus late. The bus schedule is such that you would might get in there quite late in the afternoon. It's also one of the few places where there are two good campsites close together. And if you get to the first one, you have energy and it seems busy. You could just keep going. And so the first day is about 12 to 14 kilometers, depending on which of these sites you end up at. And you listed it as taking about four to six hours. So what are some of the the highlights and challenges and some of the things that are most interesting about that first day? So the first day is, I don't want to say it's like not an interesting day, but it's not as interesting as some of the other sections of the trail. It's primarily inland. You're mostly in the forest. There's a lighthouse um, you can go visit. It's one of, uh, I think, two lighthouses along the trail, and it's still manned, so there's still a family that lives there and operates the lighthouse. Um, They have vegetable gardens, and in general, as long as you're respectful, you can go on to the lighthouse property, and they might come out and chat with you. And the lighthouses are often on big rock outcroppings, which is great because they have good views, and quite often you can see whales because they like to come in down below the rock outcroppings to feed, so that's pretty cool. There's also a side trail to... A viewpoint where you can maybe see sea lions on the first day. I don't think we saw sea lions this trip, but um, we heard them a long way away. Yeah, they're hard to miss when they're making noise. Yeah. And so the second day you go to Susiet Falls. Is that my saying yeah. that right? Okay, so Susiet yeah, Falls. And that's going to be either 11 or 13 or 11 to 13 kilometers, depending on which campsite you had the night before. What do you have that's interesting about that second day? So the big draw is is Suzette Falls, where you finish. Um, it's a beautiful, wide waterfall coming down over the sandstone shelf directly onto the beach into a little pool. So whether you're on your second day of the trip or your second to last day of the trip, you're probably going to want to have a shower under that waterfall. It's really nice. Is it cold? 
It is cold. Yes. <laughs> yes. There right. is no warm water on this trip. This is British Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> we do not have warm water unless it's a natural hot spring. Yeah. So this section, there's kind of your first taste of good beach walking. And you do get your first cable car as well. So you cross the Klanao River on a cable car. And if you've never used a cable car before, how to describe it? Basically, it's a cart that you sit in with your backpack and it's suspended on a cable and you get in and gravity pulls you down to the middle of the cable. And then on the other side, you got to haul yourself back up by hauling on the cable. So they're, they're best done with a group where people, some people sit in the cart and others sit on the, or stand on the towers on either end, hauling on the rope to get you up. It's kind of fun because it's a way to exercise your arms when you've been exercising your legs for days. So if you're the last person, do you end up having to haul yourself up or does everybody on the other end, does it make it so they can haul you up? Yeah, it makes it so everybody helps haul you up. And it's also, it tends to be a pinch point on the trail where lots of groups meet up going in different directions or catch up to each other. So you often end up helping strangers through. Okay. And then the third day is Susiette Falls to Cribs Creek. This one's about 16 and a half kilometers and takes about seven to nine hours. So that's a pretty big day. Yeah, this one's a big day. Um, it's a big day for a couple of reasons. The biggest reason is that after Nitnat Narrows, there are there's a section of beach that you're not allowed to camp on because it's such a high wildlife area that there used to be camping there, but Parks Canada have closed it because it was just too much wildlife conflict. And then past there, there's a bunch of impassable cliffs. So there's this huge section where there's just no camping, which what makes it the longest day on the trail. And while it is the longest, I don't know that it's the hardest. If you're coming, if you're starting from that direction, it might seem like it's going to be the hardest, but it gets harder. So the highlights that day, you get to walk through hole in the wall if you hit it the right tide. So there's a little arch in the rock that you can walk under. Then you do a bit on the bluffs. And then you get to the inlet I talked about earlier across Nitnat Narrows. And if you are on coming from the north side, you can't see the ferry landing on the other side, but you can hear people at the Crab Shack restaurant. So you just <laughs> yell across the narrows like, hey, can we have a ferry pickup? And then Carl Edgar or one of his family members will come across in their boat and come get you, often with dog on board. And they pull up at the Crab Shack and some people who are in a hurry just say thank you and climb off the boat and head right into the forest. But most people sit down and have some food. Yeah, that's pretty cool that it's his family's basically got this whole market cornered. <laughs> they do, yeah. Yeah, there was a like there's been a village site there for the Dididat Nation for generations. And the Edgars um are the only ones who are there now and they're just there in the summer. There's his daughter and his grandchildren all work there. There was a uncle there last time that we ended up chatting to for a long time. They're really nice people. And I assume the ferry is just a small boat. Yeah, it's a motorboat. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a, it's like a West Coast metal motorboat, pretty yep. common around here. Okay. And then, so the next day, day four, we're kind of at the midway point. And this is Cribs Creek to Walburn Creek. And that's about 11 kilometers and about four to six hours. Yeah. So Cribs to Walburn is kind of like your best beach walking section. So there was a bit of wa beach walking between Nat Narrows and Cribs, but not a ton. But from Cribs to Walbran is just the prime beach walking. Lots of, lots of good sand and sandstone shelf. Detour to Carmana Point Lighthouse here, which is the other lighthouse that's really great to visit. If Chez Monique's is open, it's right after the lighthouse. So you can get your burger there. And after that, you can stay on the beach. Um, if the tide is out, you can stay on the beach all the way to Walbran Camp and ford the creek across the mouth of the Walbran to get to camp. Otherwise, you have to take a short forest section to get there. Walbran is kind of the first of the creek campsites, which is what you'll kind of be at the rest of the trip where you're in these creek mouths, um, which is the only place that there's really a beach anymore because there's too many cliffs. Okay. And are those little sections protected from wind and, and tides and all that? Or is it just basically the only spot you could camp? Well, I mean, yeah, they're a little more protected from wind and tide, but they are also the only spot you could camp. Okay. And you've got to ford a creek right before you get to where you're going to camp. Do you, is that kind of a bummer to end up with, you know, wet at the end of the day? If you time it with the tides, it's no more than knee deep. Okay. Um, and if you don't want to ford it, you can take the forest trail and the cable car inland. Actually, one of the the kids we were with liked it so much that he went back and did the cable car because he liked <laughs> cable cars so much. He didn't want to miss any cable cars. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think you have a lot of energy when you're 10. Yeah, that's so. true. Yeah, you can send him back and have him hike the trail again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then day five, Walburn Creek to Camper Bay, and that's only 9.2 kilometers, but I'm getting the sense probably that we're getting into where the trail gets a little tougher. Yeah, so this is where you get into, I would say this is one of the harder days. The last three days here are pretty tough. So this is the first day that you get into a ton of ladders, there are lots of ladders in and out of the gullies um, because the gullies are so steep, you couldn't build a trail down them. You couldn't really build stairs down them. So basically what there are is wooden ladders down, 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 down to the bottom of a gully and then cross it on a bridge or a cable car or sometimes just stepping stones and then up, up, up the other side. So you get the first of those coming out of Walbrand Creek. And then the upland sections are forest and sometimes also bog with boardwalk. In between Walbran Creek and Camper Bay is Logan Creek, which is one of the sort of most infamous sections of the trail, where the ladders go down into the gully and then cross a suspension bridge and then back up the other side. But as of this year, there is a suspension bridge from the top of the rim to the other side of the rim. So all those ladders are no longer. And a friend hiked the trail this year who's hiked it before, who said she was kind of across the suspension bridge before she even realized like how much less work she had done. Like what used to take an hour now takes 10 minutes. I'm sure that's a huge improvement to the trail. Yeah, this is a huge improvement. And as well, some of the ladders in that section were known to be some of the scariest because they were at like crazy angles or you would be kind of pitched sideways into the abyss while like because the ladder was all crooked. And I know that some people will kind of bemoan that that aspect of the experience is gone. But in general, things are easier and safer now. How is it to climb and descend the ladders with a full pack? A lot of them are angled so that they're like climbing a very steep staircase, like a loft staircase. Um, So they're not that bad going up, going down, you know, you just have to watch your feet. Some people like to bring gloves because the ladder rungs are covered in mud from everybody else walking on them. So I think the biggest thing that people find is that you got to figure out what you're going to do with your trekking poles. Some people will just carry them in their hand. Some people will lash them to their pack or have other like methods of stowing them quickly. I personally didn't stow mine unless I knew we were in for a long section. So like the Logan Creek section and a few of the other sections coming up where I knew we had like 10 in a row. So in day six, we go Camper Bay to Thrasher Cove. This is, again, not not a huge distance, but sounds like more ladders. This is 8.8 kilometers and takes four to five hours. Yeah, so lots of ladders here, not as many as the previous section. The previous section from Walbrand to Camper has by far the most. There's one section at Cullate Creek that has seven on one side and 11 on another. So that's a lot. The section between Camper and Thrasher, I'd say, is the most rugged footwork, most technical terrain. There are a few places where the trail balances on logs and that kind of thing. Um, This is the section where the original guidebook talks about there being a huge windstorm and all of these trees being down. And so in a lot of other places, the trail was very straight. And in this section, it zigzags all over the place because it's been rerouted in the 70s to get around this windstorm damage. The big thing with day six is that there, so the forest trail is kind of the most technical, but there's also an alternate route on day six where you can go around Owen Point to Thrasher Cove instead of going up through the forest. And I've personally never done that because you need particular tides to do it. I've seen photos. It's very beautiful. It's been on my list. It just has not lined up with my vacation schedule. But to do that route, you need very low tides at the right time of day. And you basically will be walking across barnacle-covered boulders and through a sea cave. Uh, So some people find it overwhelmingly beautiful and they love it. And some people say, oh my gosh, that was awful and dangerous. And people seem to be split about 50-50 on what they think about that. It was either beautiful or the most scary thing they've ever done, right? Or both, I guess. Yeah, maybe both at the same time. Yeah. All right. And then the last day is Thrasher Cove to Gordon River and only six kilometers left. And is that pretty much a half day to get to the end of the trail? On the other end of the trail, the southern end of the trail, there is a river that you need to cross to get off the trail. And there is a water taxi, again, a motorboat that uh, takes you across and it only goes a couple times a day. And the last one of the day is I think 3 or 3.30 p.m. So you're not going to have a long day if you're heading in that direction, no matter what, because you need to make that ferry. So that section is all inland. The highest point on the trail 
Uh, it reaches a whopping 213 meters above sea level, which I think is about 600 feet. <laughs> well, 650 probably. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a hill, which is novel. It's the first hill. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing to see is a old steam engine from long ago logging. The trail is pretty rugged. One of the only places it gets rocky as well as broody and muddy. So that's fun. Another, another dynamic. And then it finishes with what I think is probably the scariest ladder on the whole trail, because for some reason, when they installed the ladder, they decided that it didn't need to be angled at all. It's dead straight up and down and quite tall, which uh, makes it kind of terrifying. Wow. Well, I guess you could just decide, I don't want to do this. It's too high and turn around and go back. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd have another six days going the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you've done this trail now twice. And so I assume you must have liked it the first time or really enjoyed the area to want to go back. For people who've never been to this area, why is this a trail they should really think about doing? I think that coastal hiking is something that is so unique that most of us who are into hiking and backpacking think about forests and mountains and lakes and rivers and that kind of thing. But to hike on the beach in a completely wilderness environment is pretty special. There's not that many places in North America that you can do that. And the West Coast Trail is one of the premier examples of that. And then even amongst coastal hiking, the West Coast Trail is unique because none of the other trails on the West Coast have these ladders like that. And none of them have these indigenous village sites with restaurants, which are <laughs> kind of cool. And I've hiked all over Washington and Vancouver Island on the coast. Um, I've done most of the coastal hikes that are to do. And I do think that the scenery on the West Coast Trail is amongst the best. You're face out into the Pacific, you get in incredible sunsets. The sandstone shelf that you can walk on is unique. You don't really get that in a lot of other places. The rainforest is beautiful. Coastal hiking, like I said, is unique. And then the West Coast Trail is unique within that. Is there a particular memory from either of your trips that stands out or a particular moment? I think definitely some of the sunsets. Um, we try to stay up for sunset every night. The first time we did the trail, we did it close to the solstice. So we were up late for hikers, <laughs> like 10 p.m., uh, way past hiker midnight. And I guess the other thing would be whales. If you're hiking the West Coast Trail in the summer, the likelihood of seeing humpback whales or gray whales feeding uh, just offshore is really high. And you can be quite close to them if you're up on a rocky bluff where they're feeding right below. And then sometimes they also like to feed just offshore on the gravel beaches. And they'll just kind of hang out there and like stick their mouth in the water on their side and swim around with their flippers sticking in the air and they look crazy, but they're right there. Yeah, that's cool. That would be fun to see. On either of these trips, were there particular things that happened that you really didn't expect that caused any problems or that you would think about doing differently the next time you do this trip, if you were to do it again? I think that in general, I always bring too many snacks. <laughs> it's not like a terrible problem to have. Yeah. I have a good friend that says, he says, we pack our fears, right? You pack everything that you actually need. And then right before you go, you pack like 10 more items. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Uh, I've heard that saying before. And most people tend to apply it to like a lightweight philosophy. But yes, I guess I am afraid of running out of snacks. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would change is, is I need to get around Owen Point and do that beach section in the sea cave that I'm missing. I would love to see that. Were there any other sort of side trips or, or layover spots that you think people should think about adding to their itinerary? Because the trail's so linear and the forest is so impenetrable, there isn't really much to do off the trail. And um, Parks Canada kind of discourages people from leaving the trail. There are a few places where people take unofficial routes or older routes um, on the beach that are can be quite dangerous. So I don't know that I'd recommend any of that. If anybody wants to take a rest day on the trail, the most common place to do it is Suziat Falls because you can have that waterfall shower. Perfect. All right. Well, Taryn, thank you so much for telling me about your hike. While I have you, though, I've got a few more questions. Sure. What is the next trip on your list? So I'm actually leaving in a few days to go to the North Coast Trail, which is at the other end of Vancouver Island on the north end of Vancouver Island. It's a newer trail. It's only been open since 2008. It's... I think 42 kilometers long, and then there's an extension that you need to hike to get out on another trail. Um, and it wraps around the northernmost end of Vancouver Island. Kind of similar to the West Coast Trail with a lot of beach walking and bog. No ladders yet, just ropes to help you up and down the embankments. 
I first hiked it when it was opened in 2008, and it was just crawling with giant black bears. But I hear that uh, with increased use, that's the far less bear sightings. I was talking to the water taxi operator when I booked my trip, and she said that they had 50 people do it the year it opened. So I was one of those. And now they have about 1,000 people do it each year. Wow. Wow. And that's interesting that bears are less common once there are more people, because here in California, they tend to be more common where there's more people because they have figured out ways to get to the people's food. Yeah, that's definitely true here. I think that the North Coast Trail is in that middle stage where they haven't gotten habituated yet. They've just moved off of the beaches that people camp on onto the more secluded beaches. So what's the worst weather you've ever experienced while outdoors and how did you handle that? So the worst weather I've ever experienced was actually on the trail I'm about to do. So that 2008 trip on the North Coast Trail. We hiked it in late August, which we're going to do again, almost exactly the same dates. So I don't know what I'm kind of karma I'm setting myself up for here. We'll see. But we had leading up to the trip, unseasonable record setting rainfall in that part of the world, uh, which continued for our first few days of the trail. And the trail was brand new. So a lot of the infrastructure, the boardwalks weren't in place yet. And the trail wasn't really very boot beaten. So we were kind of up to our ankles in mud for days the creeks overflowed. I slipped crossing a creek and fell into waist deep water. I got trench foot. My feet were so wet. A second part of your question was, what did I do about it? Yeah. I don't know. I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, what else do you do? We, we just, I ate Nutella out of the jar. Oh, that works. Um, that works. <laughs> <laughs> One night, my husband, who I guess was, we weren't married at the time, I don't think, ended up taking off all of his clothes and cooking dinner naked outside because he didn't want to stay in his wet clothes anymore. And it wasn't that cold out, but he didn't want to put on dry clothes until he got in the tent. Ah, well that, you know, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it made sense at the time. I don't know. Yeah. I really think you are tempting the fate to do this again. <laughs> yeah. We'll I mean, see. the forecast right now, we leave in two days. The forecast looks amazing. Not too hot either. We've had a heat wave recently, so we're hopefully won't have that on the trail. Um, and it's been the driest summer in decades up there. So hopefully not as, as much mud as before. Cool. That sounds like an interesting trip and I'll have to check back with you to see how it went. All right. Last question. What is the best backpacking or hiking advice you've ever gotten? So I did a like avalanche course a few years ago and my instructor had a motto that I've since adopted and her motto was it's for winter travel, but I think it applies to everything and it's be bold, start cold. So when you get going in the morning, you're cold and you want to keep your fleece on, just take it off. You're going to stop in 10 minutes and take it off anyway. And if you don't stop, you're going to get sweaty. Just be bold, start cold. That's funny. That is good advice. And I do that all the time, but mostly because I'm lazy and I just wear the same hiking clothes no matter what the weather is. <laughs> so I get up in the morning and I just wear the same thing I'm going to hike in all day. And I sit there and I freeze for the first hour or two and my hands are numb. And, you know, and so I'm glad to hear this advice because now I feel better about doing that to myself. <laughs> yeah, it's also really helpful when you're, I mean, she had it as an instructor where she's got to manage a group, but it's also really helpful for hiking in groups where you get down the trail 10 minutes and one person takes the jacket off and then 10 minutes later, somebody else takes the jacket off. and Yeah, it slows everybody down. Yeah. Yeah. Tara Knighton, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks again to Taryn Eiten. Really enjoyed having her on the show. She's really knowledgeable about the West Coast Trail and all things British Columbia. And so I hope Taryn and I have inspired you to hike the West Coast Trail. One thing to mention as a follow-up to the interview with Taryn. Taryn reports that the hike she had on the North Coast Trail went well. She said it was, as she remembered it, muddy, challenging, and beautiful. She saw only three bears this time, as compared to about 10 last time, and she had much better weather. So great to hear that that hike worked out well for Taryn. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll tell your friends about it. The more listeners, the better. Keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. 
in that category of things, as in people getting back from a trip and telling me how it went, I'm going to start a segment from time to time. I don't know what we'll call it yet. Maybe we'll call it inspired by the show or maybe just someone actually listened to me. Gary Black from the Washington, D.C. area reports that after listening to episode three about the Kilo Toa Loop in Ecuador, Gary went to Ecuador and actually hiked the trail. He did it his own way, though, which I encourage everyone to do, to do a hike in the way that makes the most sense for them. He actually hiked it in the reverse direction, and he had a guide and hired a company to do luggage transfer between the the towns along the trail which is great. So I'm excited to hear that, that Gary uh, hiked that trail. If you are interested in Ecuador or hiking in the, the Northern Andes, which is a fantastic place to go hiking, um, check out episode three, where you can hear about the culture of Ecuador, uh, as well as about a really cool trekking experience that you can have there. And before I go, I also want to remind you to give Outdoor Herbivore a try. If you haven't done so already, you can get 10% off of backpacking meals that are really tasty and filling by using the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get 10% off your order at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Outdoor Herbivore has great vegan and vegetarian backpacking meals. But as you know, if you've heard this show before, you don't have to be vegetarian or a vegan to love the meals. They're quite good. And if you've tried them, uh, reach out to me and tell me what you think of them. All right. So Trails Worth Hiking listeners, TWH10P for your discount at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right. Let's talk briefly about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to revisit an alpine wonderland rising out of the desert that we talked about back in episode seven. In episode seven, I interviewed Ryan Cornea, also known as Road Trip Ryan, about his adventure with his wife and his dog on the Ruby Crest Trail in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. Uh, Ryan and his wife had such a fantastic experience on the trail that they named their daughter Ruby after the area. I wanted to cover that trail because I had tried to do that hike in 2018. I actually drove all the way out there then. But due to bad weather and forest fires, I wasn't able to do it. But this past summer in 2021, I finally did the hike, along with my son Justin and my hiking buddy Tony Wong, uh, both of whom have appeared on many other episodes with me. So next time on Trails Worth Hiking, now that I've actually hiked the trail, we revisit the Ruby Mountains and we go a little deeper and do an update on the Ruby Crest Trail in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you'd like to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, please reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. <laughs>